Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And this is all built on a foundation of lies, because we did not... We did nothing. We, I walked in to the coffee shop, and I was like, yeah, I don't I don't want to do this, which I mean... And how long did it take you to convince me that we... Zero. We're not going to run? Yeah. Like that I was... I mean, I never want to do it, but today, it's like, yeah, I don't want to run, and you're like... Okay. <laughs> no, at first I didn't believe you. Well, but that's like, true. This you is thought a trick. it was a setup, a trick. No, no, no. I, I don't joke about being lazy. I'm very serious about that. Um, yeah, I just, mm, I'm in a, I'm in a weird stretch, but um, that's okay because this afternoon it's supposed to get up to 60 degrees, and man, I, I might. I'm telling myself now that I will run later. Just not with really? you. Really, you're gonna run? <laughs> I mean, okay. we'll see. Um, so anyway. What is astonishing you this week? Well, um, we know that God has a wonderful way of bringing people in and out of our lives. And um, I try to hold out this hope that God will bring the right people into the ministry at the right time. But um, often I want God to act sooner <laughs> rather than later. Yep. yep. And we've had a real weakness um, in the Dorado Church ministry when it comes to social media. And two months ago, a young woman joined. Her name is um, Kristen. And um, when I was meeting with Kristen after she decided to join the church, uh, one of the things she said early on was, listen, I've been looking at the church's social media, and I would love to take on the work of revamping it. And mm. I met with her for the first time last night as we start this work. And uh, clearly, the Lord has brought her to the Dorada Church ministry um, for this purpose. I mean, she is excited and energized around the ministry um, when it comes to social me social media. And so we, we met together last night at Starbucks and um, started by just kind of laying out some vision. Mm -hmm. um, how do we picture this? And so our vision is that, you know, our social media is, is kind of the front porch of mm -hmm. the house. And um, it's a place of welcome, place of introduction. But it's also a place of next steps, mm -hmm. right? So when you're actually on someone's front porch, you're going to decide if you're going to stand there and have a conversation or sit in a rocking chair and have a conversation or even go into the house, right? And uh, one of the real weaknesses of our ministry is that we are not very intentional about asking people to take a next step. Mm -hmm. It's we, we just hope that they figure it out, that they figure out you know, uh, when it's time to join or do this thing or be a part of that group or volunteer for this thing. And we don't do enough asking. And um, as we have people come into the ministry, into the life of the church from other traditions, especially those who come from um, a Baptist or Methodist tradition, I can see that we, we Presbyterians have a real problem here. Right. Yeah. We, we're just not very good, not very intentional about the ask of the next step, whatever we um, would like people to do next. We hope that they will, but we never just lay it out there and say, this is the next step we'd like you to take. And I think it has to do with our theology of salvation. I mean, we believe that our salvation is holy. 100% the work of Jesus, that we add nothing, we contribute nothing. Um, we are dead in Christ. We are, we are dead before Christ, and we are made alive in Christ. Dead people don't reach out for salvation. Dead people don't take a step toward God. No, it is God in Christ who makes us alive. God in Christ who loved us first. Before we say yes to God, God says yes to us. Uh, we don't find God. God finds us. I once was lost, but I was found totally passive. We contribute nothing to our salvation. And I think that is totally 100% oh, true. Oh, okay. I was just going to say, 
Can we just clarify that that is sort of orthodox, central... Reformed theology. Reformed theology. Yes. I, I, I both understand and affirm the truth in that, and that is not the way I would tell the story of coming alive in Christ. I mean, there's real mutuality, and I don't know. Like, I just... I guess I'm saying, who are you saying we? Because that is not. Well, and I'm when I say we, I'm referring to traditional Reformed theology. Correct. That, that is our denomination, yes. the Presbyterian Church, Correct. embraces. And I, I get it. And I, I say yes to it. I think it is largely true that we are outside of Christ, spiritually dead. And it is um, a combination of the Word of God and the Spirit of God acting within us that opens our eyes to the gospel and enables us to say yes to God. But before that yes, God has already decided to do a work in us, right? And I think that is good, right, and true when it comes to salvation. But then when it comes to, um, I don't even know how to put it, the the practical... um, ask the practical um, step toward God, we make the assumption that if salvation is wholly the work of Jesus, then that means that there's nothing for us to do. And I think that's where we we misstep. I have so much to say. I'm literally, literally... (laughs) Continue. All right, I'm almost done. So, and that's in contrast to our friends who come from maybe a Baptist or Methodist tradition, and their theology is called Arminianism, which says, uh, no, you you reach out to God for salvation. You take a step toward God, but it is, but you can take no credit for that, right? And I think the theologies are very close, but that's just me. But they have much more of a sense of asking people to walk down down an aisle, to say a prayer, to do something in response to the work of God, that there is an invitation that needs to be responded to. And so in those traditions, in those Christian traditions, it is, it is the norm to put before people a next step. Here's what we would like you to do next. And so what we're trying to do with our social media is ask, what are the next steps that we want people to take who have come to the front porch of this ministry? Um, A next step might be to attend worship in person, uh, to attend um, uh, some event. Um, uh, A next step might be to commit or recommit to following Jesus or um, what, what I really hope for, uh, in addition to commit to following Jesus, is that people will go to our social media and they hear us asking them to take on some spiritual practice, some spiritual discipline, that they will encounter something that then moves them to actually pray, to actually read scripture, to actually engage in some spiritual practice. So, I'm astonished that uh, God has done this work of bringing Kristen to uh, the Dorita Church Ministry, and that we're gonna we're gonna move this thing forward uh, with with the help of the Spirit. But being mindful is that we want to do more than make our social media look pretty and nice and slick and wonderful and have people go, "Ooh, ah, isn't this nice?" But it's about the ask, the next step. Yeah, I I just I mean, this is me dragging my soapbox up here because I have big feelings and big thoughts about this, particularly when it comes to the, I think, unintended consequences of the denomination that you and I are a part of. And I think you and I are very clear, and it's no shade to Presbyterians. I would say this if I were any other part of any other tradition, I don't think that Presbyterians are any better or any worse than any other. But like, I am first a follower of Jesus. And then secondarily, This is just the community, the particular way that um, the Lord has 
placed me and called me to follow and I'm grateful and I appreciate that and also I see it from the inside and you and I both see it we are we are outside insiders right and so unlike many people at least of our Presbyterian colleagues um, particularly in this part of the country many of our colleagues if they are not children of Presbyterian pastors they grew up inside um, not just a church, but inside a Presbyterian church. And you and I, as we talk about frequently, did not. And so it's very, there. there is, I, I experience a spirit of disinterest inside this denomination, like a spirit of like, we'll see. And I think it is not just apparent to somebody who's, you know, a, a pastor um, seeking connection, but I think it, I think it, trickles down again in and I'll talk specifically about sort of this region that we're a part of um, that churches are sort of not hostile to people coming but we're not gonna like we're not gonna make ourselves look stupid we're not gonna look eager we're not gonna make ourselves vulnerable and like we're not sure and I and so having moved to Charlotte from the um, Northeast where you know, there are just, there are less churches in general, and certainly a lower percentage of people who practice the Christian faith. Um, when I was part of a Presbyterian church up there, and, and also there's sort of a cachet and a mystique to being Presbyterian in this Charlotte region, because many of the historical great citizens were Presbyterians, with people with a lot of power, you know, the streets are named after Presbyterian churches. A lot of like legacy philanthropic institutions were founded by the Presbyterian church, a lot of civic leaders. So that's what I mean when I say like just powerful people were Presbyterians and there was a lot of overlap between these faith institutions and secular and civic institutions in, in good and bad ways, right? That's just a, a fact. But in, in Boston, psh, no one cares about Presbyterians. Like, literally, people did not know the difference. Like, when I would say I was Presbyterian and people thought that it was Pentecostal. Like, Pentecostalism was, was, mu- was something people were much more familiar with, which is also fine. But when I was serving in this little church in Boston, when people came in the door, we were glad. We were glad. Like, we were excited. And the, and the pastor who was leading the church, who's still there, sort of had to say in many ways, like, I need y'all to just have a little bit of chill. Like, when people walk in the door, like, wow. do not do not mob them. Like, just, just give them some space, right? And then moving down to this region, um, being in churches. Um, this I, region being the southern U.S., yes. North Carolina. People would be friendly, but no one had to warn anybody to be chill, right? Because when people, it was sort of this like, we'll see. Like, maybe you're one of us. And if you're one of us, you're welcome. But you might not be one of us. And also, we don't, we, you know, it's like the sense of, you know, wanting to be, you know, sort of like, there's a sense that spiritual zeal is embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And so we are, we are above that. Like we are the intellectuals and to sort of say like, yeah, that, that we are a community of shared theology as opposed to a community of shared practice. Cause I don't care if you are an Armenian or a predestination, like whatever, either way, Jesus gave us very clear instructions about how we were supposed to welcome strangers and invite people in and love one another. And so I do think that work of welcoming in a stranger and having um, real, authentic, loving relationships like that is, it's hard, it costs us something, it's risky, and it is, um, and it is convenient to be able to say like, no, 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 I don't have to really know you, I don't have to share life with you, I just, you and I assent to the same philosophical, theological supposition, and this is the basis of our life together and it's cold and you can tell. And so I think that for me, what makes me frustrated is look, um, as, as somebody who grew up on the outside, like I'm really grateful that 
the way I found belonging in a church, actually, ironically, because I went to a Presbyterian church a few times when I was in um, elementary school and middle school, and and I loved it. Um, But we moved and the church that invited me in was a Methodist church because there's a real ethic in that tradition, not perfectly. And there are obviously exceptions all across the board, but there's a real emphasis broadly in the Methodist tradition between like certain acts that you take as opposed to in the Presbyterian tradition where it really is sort of core identity sometimes with how you think and how you rule, right? Because the word Presbyterian, people think it comes from predestination, but it doesn't. It comes from Presbyterian, meaning the presbos, meaning elder, meaning a person who holds a particular um, position of either service or authority, depending on how you color that. So it's just a different orientation. So um, I think that it, it it is frustrating to me to see how our Again, this is not this is not absolute, and it is imperfect, and it might be entirely regional, though I don't think so. Um, but there is just a sense of like this is our church, and we might share it with you, or we might not. And hey, we have this theology that says whether we welcome you in or not, if you were going to be where you were going to be with God, it would happen. And so we don't have, like we don't need like we have replaced this idea that runs throughout Scripture of being like called to community and having our experience of God bound up in our lives with one another and all the one anothering passages. Like we we have just replaced all of that with with a theology that I would argue grows out of American rugged individualism than actually any of the witness of scripture or the fundamental incarnation of Christ, which is about leaving one place and coming down to live with and beside at great personal cost those who are far from God and their real selves. And so I just think like to be able to say, and I, and somebody in my church shared this meme that's running around on Facebook lately and um, said like, it is hard for people to believe that a God they can't see loves them when the church they can see I mean, I think the meme said doesn't like them, but I think, or just as indifferent, right? Like if church is one more place that I have to show up and find out whether I'm going to belong and find out whether I'm worthy. And like, that's just really, really destructive. And, and like the Presbyterian church writ large has an evangelism office, but just like the energy and emotion and passion. I mean, like evangelism is a dirty word in our tradition. Now, listen, I think that there are a lot of ways that evangelism has been misused and misappropriated in a lot of destructive and and antichrist kind of way. But fundamentally, to be able to say, hey, we have a story that we believe in, that we that gives us hope, and that we are we are because we follow Jesus, have a different way of seeing the people around us and and in obedience to Jesus and in hopeful expectation, we have a posture of like welcome and unconditional positive regard and hope towards the people that God is sending into our path. And we are eager to reach our arms out and, and welcome, like welcome people in as, you know, long lost brothers and sisters and discover what gives we have to share with one another. Like that spirit, which I think is very much the spirit of you know, the early church in Acts and certainly the spirit of Jesus walking around and calling in these disciples who had no idea that God had any interest in them, much less that God would invite them in to like beautiful, salvific, like cosmos shifting work, you know, like we, that's not in our church. And I think there's sometimes like a real uh, authentic and beautiful sense of wanting to serve the world well and an, an authentic and beautiful sense of wanting to share truth that we treasure with the world and that's fine but there's just a an arm's lengthness that I just don't think that I'm the only person who has this experience and I think that we really need to really like it's not cute to not care if people discover Jesus now that doesn't mean that I want to walk into a mosque and be like y'all need to get out of here and come into our church like I'm not talking about dragging people away from other faith traditions and telling them they're wrong and we're right I am talking about really paying attention to who actually comes into our community and who we have contact with because I would say when it comes to you know social media like a person who comes to the Derida church social media sites 
he's already on a spiritual journey. Like you're not ubiquitous. You don't have a huge budget. Like anybody who stumbles across your social media, like I just think it makes sense to take the posture of, I, I, it's like, it's more than likely that the Lord has sent this person here. So how do we want to greet them and meet them and serve them, believing that the Lord is in this encounter, that it is a space of mutual blessing and, you know, flourishing and interdependent shalom. So to talk about, you know, next steps to be able to say like, I want you to know that you are welcome here. I want to be clear with you about um, th- that that there are no expectations on you, but that there is, you know, real welcome. That if you want to come and sit and 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 be served and be safe and and question and learn, that that's great. And also, we expect that this place doesn't belong to us. This community doesn't belong to us. And so there are folks who belong here who we don't know who we are not choosing or picking or orchestrating their intention. So I just think, like that, I I, I grieve that I think. Um, there's a spirit, and I think this is broader than the Presbyterian Church, and some in many mainline, I would say, historically white denominations of like, okay, our churches are dwindling down, and there's nothing we can do about it, and so like, how are we going to faithfully dispose of our assets? Let's let's think about how we can be social entrepreneurs and like invest in different um, causes that I think are directly derived from gospel principles. But I'm also just like, why in the world if 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 we don't care? whether our church grows and thrives and has a legacy, like what are we doing with our lives? And so I just, I mean, it just frustrates me. So I, so I love that. And, and I, it frustrates me that I don't, I don't see this message in our seminaries. I don't see this message again. Like I see a real passion that I'm all for, like for justice and for making an impact in the world and for serving. But I just, we needed to recover a passion for our own institutions and an understanding that, like, look, the Lord loves to fix broken things and make dead things come back to life and to confound the wisdom of this age with, like, the foolishness and smallness and paucity of, like, ordinary human institutions. So what better would glorify that Lord than for there to be a genuine resurgence even in a church like this. But I think that starts with us knowing that like welcoming people in is core to our identity. And so of course that's what we should be doing. And that's hard to do when we're trying to maintain a facade of like having it all together and being experts and not having any needs of other people. So, okay, I can breathe now. (laughs) And I would add to that. Having a sense that something spiritual, that something eternal is at stake. Yeah. That this matters not simply for the growth of the congregation. Absolutely. But for the lives, the souls, the spirits of these people who are coming to social media or... Um, to the actual campus on a Sunday morning that something spiritual, something eternal is at stake. And I do think you're right that uh, there's something in the culture of our denomination that is embarrassed by that. We'd much rather be intellectuals. Um, I remember early on in ministry, um, and like you said, having not grown up in the Presbyterian church, went to a Presbyterian college and seminary and I was simply just, I just wanted to be Presbyterian, whatever that meant. And I remember after being ordained and uh, preaching for a couple of years, I was asked to preach in a Baptist church. And, um, and so I, I preached and, you know, said amen and sat down. And the people said, give the invitation to discipleship. And I was like, mm-hmm. huh? Like, give the invitation to discipleship. And I realized, oh, we don't do that. And so I got up and fumbled around. Uh, Contrast that with last Sunday, right before worship, um, I I usually sit on the the front pew uh, of the the sanctuary. Uh, Someone tapped me on my shoulder and said, Pastor, um, uh, we must all be Christians here. I was like, what do you mean? 
the way you gave the invitation last week, if no one responded to that, it must mean that we're all we're all believers. And and I've I've tried to make a habit of every Sunday saying, hey, the doors of this church are open. The arms of right. Jesus are open. And recently I've added, you know, the gates of heaven are open wide. And uh, and all you have to do, just say yes. Just say yes right. to this invitation. And I do and think that matters. Yeah. And I do think that that is true, that the reality is Jesus. And, and again, I think Presbyterians are very comfortable saying this in the abstract, that Jesus yeah. requires a decision. Like we're, we are very comfortable writing a paper about it or even writing a book about it or attending a lecture about it and talking about what this means in terms of like really what it means in terms of global or national issues. And, and it's not wrong. Like none of it is wrong, but it's also then it, it, it is as if it, it doesn't have any sense of needing to make a decision in your own personal life or someone else's personal life or or in the neighborhood, or in how we conclude a, a worship service, because the reality is, I have no trouble on, well, I do have trouble, but I mean, I have doubts like everyone else in the world. I wrestle, I think, because I take it seriously, but like, I I believe and trust the Lord for salvation. Honestly, trust, hope, believe, and pray that the Lord's, you know, that God's will will be done, and that's, like, I trust God for salvation, but I know that right now, the kingdom is not fully here yet. And I know that that God works in the midst of people's people saying yes. Um, and and so that might mean something different to me than it does to, you know, Stephen Furtick at Elevation. Like it does, obviously, but it still is about, you know, it still is about sharing the good news of the gospel about who we think Jesus is and then saying like, absolutely, I think it matters more and more people who become disciples of Jesus. I think that is the way that our communities turn away from, you know, um, the myth of redemptive violence and like, like trusting in corporations and, and government institutions as our only hope and turns towards like, how do I look at what I have and invite the Lord to lead me in living in ways that conform to the ethic of the gospel, as opposed to the dominant ethic of power or elitism or whatever culture war side that I happen to be fighting on might like it matters. And I think when we sort of feel like, well, we have this special knowledge because we are the kind of people who would say yes to Jesus, but there's no point in inviting others because if they would already be here, if they belonged, like that's really ugly. And it's not, um, I think sometimes we say like, well, no, no, you can't be for evangelism because evangelism is just about telling people in all the other faith traditions that they're wrong and that you know better than them. Like, no, like I believe that tolerance is a key virtue of trusting God for salvation and allowing Jesus to be Lord. Like, I don't think I, but I, I think a lot of what we call tolerance is actually just indifference. It's just indifference. It's wanting to be able to control who is in our communities and who's my neighbor and who's my brother and who's my sister and to be able to draw a line and say those other people who challenge me, who pray in ways that make me feel uncomfortable, who don't intrinsically agree with the way I live my life, well, they don't belong to me anyway and I don't have to deal with them. And that's just not true. Yeah, remember when Jesus called his first disciples? He simply said, follow me, like a clear invitation. And they left their nets, their boats, their business, and followed Jesus. And that is a kind of supernatural, spirit-compelled decision for Christ that makes Presbyterians very, very, very uncomfortable. And I think when it comes down to it, I'm not sure if we really believe our own theology. Mm -hmm. If we truly believe the theology that I was dead, like spiritually dead to God, and God saw that, had compassion on me in Christ, when I was not thinking about God, was living my life, moving away from God, living far from God, that God came and got me. God sought right. me. God came after me, tapped me on the shoulder, and said, come be mine. Like That, that ought to create within us a wonder and astonishment and awe. 
it, it's it <laughs> when my wife and I go out to a restaurant inevitably if it's just the two of us well with our little one as well when when the when the food comes um <laughs> at least one of us will taste and go oh my good this is so good you have to try this you've got to try this right yeah. that is is what should be happening in us spiritually this is so good come and meet a man who told me everything about right. me and right. i think and i remember how difficult like i couldn't have had this conversation with you 12 years ago mm. when we were first going into the transformation process and and the coaches that the denomination much to his credit and warren lasane brought in who came from a different branch of the body of christ and and like maybe I, I don't know. It'll be shocking, but I think I probably talked more than I listened in those days. <laughs> well, Who can so, imagine? But like, it was very challenging to me. Maybe it wasn't as I'm challenging glad you're, to you. You're going to keep talking because um, that was such a temptation for me to um, say some things. Yeah, keep going. I try to say it so you don't have to. But I'm just saying, like, <laughs> I remember how mad that made me. I remember how defensive I was. I remember how how I remember as yes, well. I know you do. <laughs> It's a miracle that we're friends. It's really, really, really a miracle that we're friends. Um, but I mean, I get it. I, I, I understand that that either, I mean, either there are people listening, like, how are those sweet dum-dums just finding out about evangelism? Correct. Or there are people who are listening being like, get off my back. Like, how dare you? Like, of course, I'm already everywhere I need to be. And I just think sometimes. And what we're expressing is that the two of us are people on a journey like everyone right. else. And. We've had this learning curve. We we believed in Jesus and yet major blind spot. Well, and I think like I just was taught to associate evangelism with imperialism, right? Like I, I with with this and idea. I was taught to associate evangelism with manipulation, right. emotional manipulation. And so I think to be able to also really look and say at the time that I was so paralyzed, um, and, and really just felt like that wasn't my place. It wasn't my job. I, I, I wasn't like, that wasn't what God wanted. In fact, it was, it was the opposite of what God wanted. I, you know, that, that part of it was, there was just a, a whole, a, a whole new Vista era, <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to use the word level because that implies hierarchy and better and worse and so that's not what I mean but just like uh, there was just so much more for me within my own experience of Christ which is not to say that the experience of Christ I was currently having was not valid or authentic or of God because it completely was I just I was satisfied with the faith I had which you know I loved God I knew God loved me I, I experienced God but I also felt like the whole thing, like I was a snail and all of the responsibility and labor and energy of the whole Christian enterprise was like on my back. And so, I, you know, it was just like, I, I just didn't, I just had not yet received all that God had given me, but it started with somebody coming and confronting me with this way of talking about the, the life with God that I just found like offensive and deeply troubling and um you know anyway so I just I feel really I notice that I feel really differently than many of my colleagues in the tradition not all certainly not all but many of my colleagues in the tradition and and I think you and I are uniquely um equipped for this because I didn't grow up in the church. So if no one had ever invited me in, I just would have spent my whole time thinking like, that's nice for some people, but it's not me. I'm not a Christian. And so it was someone like nobody forced me to do anything. It's just that someone invited me in. And once I was in, I found that I belonged. Right. And so I think that just it's, it's that sense of not taking for granted that you are where you are and that, you know, where you, you know, what you know, that it's, it's not like a, a function of divine birthright, right? And so again, I'm not about compelling anybody to do anything. And I'm certainly not about saying that I know what other pe another person's relationship with God is, but I am about saying, hey, I know that there's nothing about me that is, there's nothing about my life with God 
that it makes me intrinsically more able to follow God than any other kind of person. I needed to be invited in. And whether it's our, our children who grow, I mean, like we are now both raising children who are growing up inside the faith, like they will need an opportunity, you know, to, to choose for themselves as well. And, and that's just as it should be. Um, because, you know, we, we can't have someone else's relationship with God for them, but we also can't decide for them that like, oh, they wouldn't like it here. Oh, they have nothing to offer. Oh, they're, they're fine where they are. Um, which I think really underneath my tolerance was really spiritual pride. Like once I scratched the surface away, it was this idea that like, well, when I heard the message of Jesus, I found it beautiful and compelling and it turned my world around and it changed who I was as a person. But like that wouldn't happen for someone else. That was just a factor of like, what what great soil I was. Like my heart just had <laughs> such good soil in it. And you know, anybody else's heart, like, I don't know about you. So there's no point in me talking to you. Like just, it was spiritual pride. And I think um, there's a lot of pride within our denomination because we have a lot of what the world um, approves of. Yeah, our denomination has an emphasis on Matthew 25. I was hungry and you fed me. Which I love. Naked and you clothed me. Yes, it's great. Um, 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 but there's the place where it also says, I was a stranger and, and you, you welcomed, welcomed me. me. Right? Which the Matthew 25 initiative within our denomination, which I really approve, is talking about um, I'm going to get the language wrong, but like dismantling po uh, systemic poverty, racism, uh, anti-race and anti and being anti-racist or dismantling racism and recovering or, you know, vital congregations. And so I, I what I really appreciate is that those three strands woven together. It's both this idea of systemic justice work and the spiritual work of welcoming, loving people, inviting them to take next steps with Jesus and the church. And I think what we have to understand is like we are not God's superheroes. So real, healthy, and holy work of justice, recovery, you know, redemption, whatever language you want to put it, it's not possible in the context of the Christian church. It is not possible outside of a spiritual community wherein you know God and know seasons of rest and equipping and know that you are one of the many and, you know, the, that we are not called to be heroes. We are not called to be icons. We are not called to be saviors. Like we are people who can walk into the world in, in poverty, both like monetarily and intellectually and power wise and just know that out of our out of our surrender to Christ it's God who is doing something in the world it's God who is reclaiming so we don't have to be big we don't have to be powerful we don't have to be wise we don't have to be credentialed we don't have to be any of that we can be a people who simply are f so filled by the love of God and our life in Christ that we are free to be able to speak the truth and happy to make sacrifices and to say no to things that um, expose us to the scrutiny or even ire of the world mm. because what we have in Christ is more than enough for us and is not at stake. And so I think, you know, that, that it's that, it's that interweaving of those two things that allows us to be used by God and to and to enter into certain spaces in a humble and in a healthy way where we don't inadvertently do more harm um, than anything else. So so what's astonishing you? That was a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. Well, I, I'll just say really quickly because I think it's related um, to just the goodness of God. I mean, there's just the real, um, I think... I mean, obviously, I have issues like anybody else in the world with what? my pride, I, with pride and ego and all those things. And I, I, God has been so, so just gracious and patient with me and at the Grove, like all the things that have happened um, there, just absolutely not through me, absolutely not through me, like in so many ways, in spite of me, like just the experience of like, no, God is doing something and it is such a joy and a privilege and a gift 
to be part of this community where God is doing something and also such a gift to know that like, oh, I'm not doing it. Like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm not doing it. So, I, um, and so over seasons, like things have just really, and it's taken time, but I don't know that the Grove will ever be a church that will look impressive in the eyes of the world or be clarified as big, but it, there's just a, a vitality now and, and, you know, people are, are coming and it's really, really beautiful. And, and apropos of this conversation, what's really lovely to me is there are people coming into the community who are, who are not you know, who are becoming Christians. And, and, and we prayed about that, right. That we wanted to be a disciple making community and, and we wanted not just to get people to join the church, but to really help people come alive in Christ, which is crazy. That's part of our, it's a third part of our mission. And it's crazy that that's part of our mission statement, because of course I don't have the power to make anybody else come alive in Christ. I don't even have the power to make myself come alive in Christ. So it's just like that intrinsic paradox of like having a mission that also, is God's mission, right? And so that sense of like, God is that, and that's where I think we can say like, look, I know that everything that is happening is happening through the power of God and at the, at the will of God. And also like the mystery of it all is that we have been invited to participate and that nothing is up to us, but, but God does choose in, in God's glory to reveal you know, God's goodness and power and presence through the like feeble, real, ordinary, messy offerings that, that we make. And so anyway, people are, we have been praying for a long time to be a disciple making community, which is really weird because I don't, you know, how do you make a disciple? I mean, you can't make someone a disciple, but how, how can you support and encourage people in uncovering or recovering or growing the the vitality of their life with Jesus. And um, so after all these years, like there really are folks who are like, I'm, I'm here and I'm part of the church. And also like, I don't, I've never been a part of a church before. And so we, we have um, a couple of um, gosh, like now I'm not a young person anymore, but um, young women in the church in their twenties, um, who are, who are like us, we're not born in Christian families. And so some of them have come to me and said like, Hey, can we have a Bible study for people who don't know anything about the Bible? Because like, I need a space where I can just be like, I don't, who's Moses and just not feel stupid, like not feel like everybody around this table, you know, like, and so we, um, this past Wednesday, we had the second one and we haven't even shared it with the church yet. Cause I wanted to make sure that it would work, but we are having a Bible study with children's Bibles and just trying to help. Cause it's, it, it really helps to read the Bible. If you already know what's going to happen, like it's really hard to read the Bible for plot. <laughs> like it just doesn't work in that way. So like, it's really hard to understand the story of like Jacob wrestling with God without knowing here's the whole story. He wrestled with God and he got wounded and then he, he got blessed. Like that's the story. And cause sometimes you just read this stuff and you're like, wait, what, what happened? Like, did I miss something? This couldn't be, you know? So anyway, so we're, we're, we started at Genesis and, you know, are, are going through with the children's Bible and, and a Bible, but just like a re- like really like 50,000, 150,000 level just to help people see like can we start with Adam and Eve and like go through the whole thing just so you get the scaffolding but can we do it around a table where people don't feel like they can't ask the question like wait what what's a rainbow like what what does a rainbow have to like people don't know that story and again I think that's the problem with our assumption that we don't need to invite anybody in because if they belonged they'd already be here if they wanted to come in they'd already know like we are a post-Christian I mean I don't think we were ever a Christian nation, but we are no longer a nation where everybody who grows up knows the basic stories of faith. And I'm not mad about that, but we can no longer have these assumptions that people are going to walk in the door. And when we start telling the story of Abraham, people know who that is. And so it's really helpful to make a space on purpose, ready to um, receive and serve folks who you know, want an introduction to scripture. And maybe I know there are things that exist like alpha and I, I think that's great, but sometimes even that <laughs> assumes a level of knowledge. And I think alpha is primarily 
around Christian belief, theology. Right. And we're just trying to tell the story. The basic narrative of the Bible. I, I think that is powerful and beautiful and wonderful and so needed. And I think it is phenomenal that you're using children's Bibles. Like, I did not know the wonder of a children's Bible until I actually had a child and bought several and started reading through them and found them so helpful just to get the basic narrative. Just to get, yeah, the the scope of the whole history is so great. Because the Bible is this network of not just stories, but symbols and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's callbacks and, and <laughs> yes and yeah. the way it is written and put together you you read it over and over again for a lifetime and after a while you start to um you start to see the connections mm-hmm. between old and new testaments and this book and that book and this person here and that person two thousand years later and that's phenomenal and um i was introduced to that concept of the grand narrative uh, my very first year of college, and I'd never, I'd never really read the Bible or knew very much, and you know, until my college experience. And my very first class, um, we had to purchase a book by um, what was his name? Oh, A. B. Rhodes. I still have it on my shelf. It's in paperback, and it's called The Mighty Acts of God. And it is this this paperback um, that takes you through the narrative of Scripture. And um, it was at that point I started to, to, to see the, the grand story. And it is wonderful. And, yes, you really need to have that, those, those basics, so that when someone stands up on Sunday morning and reads, you know, 10 verses, if you, if you can't set that in a context, then... Well, I just think there's a lot of richness that, well, and it's funny because I was talking to some people about doing children's ministry and I was saying like, hey, here's what, here's my vision for this. Like, I don't want to explain these stories to kids, right? Like I, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you what they mean. I just want you to know the stories. Like I just, at this point in your life, it is a win if you know, here is the first story of creation. Mm-hmm. Here is the second story of creation. Here's the story of the Tower of Babel. Here's the, like, I don't, I don't need you to tell you, okay, now this means this, and this means that, and this is why you have to behave in this way. I just want you to know these stories so that they're in your heart and so that the Lord can use them to show you things that are, I just think, universal and ancient and present about what it means to be human and and who God is. And so it was having this conversation with some of these people who said, like, I'd like to help with the children. And they were like, well, I, I don't know these stories. So like, how can I teach them the kids if I don't know them myself? And I'm like, well, fair. And it it strikes me that like that, like, and I guess this is another like connection to what we were talking about before. I think sometimes we're so busy trying to make sure that people understand things correctly, that we aren't just content to be like, Hey, here's the story. And if you want to know what I think or how I understand or what I see in this text, I'm, I'm happy to share that with you. But also I know that you don't need my understanding. You need the word of God, mm-hmm. right? To be able to invite people into a community. If you're like, I don't know about you and you don't know about me and do you belong and do I belong and how's this all going to work out? Or just to be like, Hey, what I know is that it's my job to invite you in. And then I actually believe that God is sovereign. <laughs> I actually believe in the providence of God. And what? so I'm going to trust that if God told us to invite people in, God had a reason and a purpose and a goodness in that. And I don't need to be able to anticipate it. Um, I just need to be able to wisely and faithfully um, and intentionally practice the way of Jesus. And so that takes us to what we're both thinking about, um, which is... Lent is coming up uh, next week is Ash Wednesday, and um, you and I are preaching a series together, which you have so wonderfully, faithfully, and in a detailed way planned out, and I'm embarrassed to admit that, um, you know, we're looking at the the passion narrative, uh, which is the, the last week of uh, Jesus' life as he um, goes to the cross, and 
it is when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, those four books called the Gospels, you know, they tell of the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, but when they get to that last week of his life, they slow down and they spend mm-hmm. a lot of time in that last week. And to my great embarrassment, I have never preached through uh, the passion narrative. I've never spent a lot of time. Of course, on Good Friday, I will talk about the crucifixion, and maybe there's a, also a, an additional service during Holy Week, the week before uh, Easter, and there will be something uh, from that passion narrative that last week of Jesus' life. But you and I are preaching the passion narrative throughout the season of Lent. And um, yeah, I think people just need to hear that narrative. Right. Well, and I think when we say the passion narrative, like it's not six weeks of the crucifixion, Correct. right? That So actually, you know, the Gospel of John, I think, spends more time in the passion of Jesus than the whole rest of his life put together, but like one verse on the actual crucifixion. So it's about, you know, all of these, like why did Jesus end up on the cross? And all of these, um, I mean, we call them powers and principalities, but these institutions and systems leaders within, you know, the secular civic government and religious institutions and religious leaders as well. Like how, how do all of these, people, groups, and institutions, which all say they want the same thing, which is like justice and peace and like the well-being of everyone, but but actually um, have an agenda that is resistant or contrary to um, to the coming of the kingdom of God. And, and I think, um, you know, and there's some connection too, again, of like coming up in the system where you're told like, hey, you need to preach preach from the lectionary. Like some people sat around a table 40 years ago, they had degrees and they decided here are the texts that churches need to listen to. It's a three-year rotation. And so you as a local pastor, like you have the freedom to choose within these six texts on every Sunday, but you need to stay on this lectionary track and, and, um, don't don't go do an eisegesis and like just preaching your own whims and fancies, right? Like you gotta trust this, trust this institution, trust these traditions, like stick stick to the plan. Don't be led by the spirit. Well, I mean, and I think like I both think it is really important to be grounded in a community and not just preaching like, hey, I like these stories better than those stories, or this is my agenda, so I'm gonna find the biblical narratives that that um sync with it. But but also just how clearly I bought into the idea of like, oh, there's somebody else somewhere else who knows better than I do. And like, I can't be trusted to discern what God would want preached in the local congregation that I pastor. Like I, anyway, so I believed that for a really long time. Um, and if you are following the lectionary, then you don't, you don't have those texts. You, you are, you preach, you know, the texts around Jesus's passion, um, the, you know, maybe Good Friday, but other than that, like they're not in the rota. So especially when it comes to not like you do get Jesus talking at the Last Supper, you know, so you do get what scholars would call the farewell discourse. So Jesus's last teaching unit to his disciples, which has many of, yes, absolutely the themes of like who who God is and what God is doing and what it will mean to follow Jesus. So so that gets in there. But the actual stories of like who did what to whom, like how did this trial and sentence come down? Like what powers and institutions colluded with one another? Why did they do what they did? Um, what were the reactions of the people who followed Jesus and the people who opposed Jesus? Just how did that huge travesty of justice how did it all play out? And then how did the Lord, um, you know, walk it out and respond to it? And I think when we don't get that, then when we see the same kinds of political expedience, the same kinds of hypocrisy and fear and power grabs within our institutions today, we think, oh gosh, I, 
God, turn back the clock from when all these places were trustworthy because we, we don't know how to survive. Like, you know, our faith can no longer is no longer enough because we've never seen anything this terrible ever before. And like, actually we just, this is ancient and it's present. And you know, the witness of the gospel is it is not the future. And so we are able to say, look, the people who believe that they have all the power in the world, they're not evil and they're not our enemies, but, but we don't need to um to gain those seats or be approved of or get the permission of these institutions in order to follow Jesus and the choices that we make which are risky and dangerous and frankly look foolish and wasteful actually become the canvas whereupon God displays God's salvation and God's glory good salvation does not come from the Roman government it does not come from the American government and our life with God does not it you know god is not owned and distributed by religious institutions and their licensors so so being able to say again i have no animosity towards anyone and i am grateful for the rich gifts that have been given through these institutions like i i serve an institution i believe in institutions and also jesus you know our walking through these stories slowly shows us the danger of trusting in an institution more than in the God, the institution says it serves. So, um, anyway, I'm, I, because yeah, I'm excited to do this and, and the sermon series is on decision. So like we often talk about how do we say yes to God, but we really need to look carefully at what, what does it look like when we're actually saying no and to understand that the people who said no, um, to God at critical points in the passion, A, did not have the power to derail God's plan of redemption for all of creation. Um, but B, none of them were like the villain in the old timey movies with like the mustache, like rubbing his hands and tying the maiden <laughs> up on good. the train tracks That's and just good. being like, I'm evil <laughs> and I love to be evil. I mean, these were all people who felt like this is the only choice I can make. And it's for the greater good. It's for the greater like good. Like people, you know, that that is the myth we believe in, that the people who do what we think is bad and sometimes what we accurately perceive as bad, that the, the, those are awful, horrible, garbage, immoral people. And the reality is um, these are people who were working with the truths they believed in. Um, and, and it... And Even if they were absolutely wrong. Correct. And... and and the folks who who decided yes for Jesus didn't do it out of their own virtue or moral superiority. I mean, that they were really compelled by the Spirit. Um, something was in them that wasn't of them. And, yeah. Well, and I would add, not only did the um, institutions of government and religion um, fail, um, say no to Jesus when you read the Passion Narrative, but also those closest to Jesus, those who committed themselves to following him, those who loved him, um, found themselves saying no. Uh, I'm thinking especially of Peter. And yet, after the resurrection, Peter is restored. Peter becomes a leader in the church. Uh, right. And so and we Peter's, need that whole narrative. Right. And Peter's betrayal of Jesus is news to him, but it's not news to Jesus, right? right. So right. so we sort of feel like, oh my gosh, if we mess up, like that's it. Like we have altered the mm -hmm. cosmic. And and that's where I do, like I do believe in the sovereignty of God. Well, and I was about to say that's, I, I think there's, there's so much right in our theology, our reformed theology, but we really don't get it because when you walk through the kind of text that we're talking about, especially with Peter, you then begin to see that it's really not about how well I am holding on to God. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I should as, 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 as much as I can, as hard as I can. But the good news is that in spite of all of my weakness, God is holding on to me. That God is God yeah. all by himself as, yeah. as, the old folks say. And I think the, so often what we get wrong about the sovereignty and providence of God is this sense of like, well, even if I do bad, it doesn't matter because God's got this. And I'm like, well, see, this is the problem. You have a, 
I mean, and we all do, so no shade, but we have this transactional sense of like, oh, I got to do good for God so that God will do good for me. And, and the freedom and the invitation of the gospel is like, you don't have to do anything for God. The invitation is to see what God is doing, to behold it as lovely and good and authentically desire it for its own sake so that you would really say, even if I knew that none of this is real, the way of Jesus compels me so much that I would choose it anyway because this, because my heart has been strangely warmed because I have been born again because I now see that this is beautiful and this is good. And even if it costs me, this is what I choose. And even if it benefits me to go in a different way, I don't want to go in that way because honestly, the only benefit I seek is the goodness of God, which is in front of me. And that's, you know, deliverance. And so to be able to say that, like, yes, the sovereignty and providence of God is big enough to not be derailed by our unfaithfulness, but true faith, which is absolutely purely a manifestation of God's grace, but true faith wants to be part of the way of God, not because we have to, but just because you genuinely desire, like it is the good for you now. And so um, grace is what then gives us comfort that even when we mess up, God can still use and write us into the story. It's not the sense of like, now I can do whatever I want because God's going to give me a heavenly hall pass. And that's, you know, you just have to experience that and you can't, you can't manufacture it and you certainly can't manufacture it for anyone else. And, you know, allowing God to be God of other people's lives is a key foundation to actually having peace with God here and now. So, um, yeah. And I think the last thing that we were going to say beforehand is just talking about, you know, the season of Lent, this 40 day spiritual journey to the cross, which is a tradition that I think God is blessed. It's certainly not a necessity. It's, you know, um, but it starts with, um, it needs a new name though. Oh, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't mind the, I, I like Pulling out from the storehouse treasures that are old and treasures that are new. <laughs> Bing, we're a little Baptist on you. Um, but it starts with Ash Wednesday, which is a day that we gather um, at the church. And um, there's an ancient liturgy um, wherein you you receive ash, like someone rubs ashes mixed with oil on your forehead. And, and it's a, it you know, remember you are dust and to dust you will return. So that's a a call to like we are formed of the dust and that, you know, we will die. And I think a lot of times it gets turned into this like metaphysical experience of like, it's just good for us to contemplate our mortality and to like stare into the void. And, you know, maybe hopefully to know that, you know, we don't have to be to fear death because our death has been caught up and transformed by the salvation of God. Um, but I think, it's more than that, right? It's just this moment to stop and say, hey, I have this one finite life here on earth and someday it will be over and I have the opportunity to look at the gift of this life that I have and decide what do I want to be for and what do I want to be against? And even if I screw it up, even if I'm no good at it, you know, the amount of days that we have to choose Jesus are limited and um, that is precious. And sometimes you just want to stop um, and say, what is my, what do I know for sure? And am I living out of that most um, precious truth or am I sort of swimming on the surface of my life and, you know, yeah, there are a number of parables that Jesus told that end with a door being closed and people left outside. And those parables end with words like, and there was weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Mm -hmm. Right, And so part of the intent of those parables is to do exactly what you just said, to look way down the road who knows it may not be that far down the road and to take seriously a decision here's that word again a decision that we must make for or against jesus mm -hmm. and i think again 
20 years ago, 10 years ago, I couldn't have had this conversation. And I, you know, I'm grateful to not be who I was. Like, I'm grateful that, you know, my belief is that the Lord has, you know, deepened my understanding and has um, showed me, you know, the value in things that I previously might have misunderstood and dismissed in ignorance. And, um, you know, the, the goal of my life with God is not to be right. The goal of my life with God is to grow deeper and more fully alive in Jesus. And so that's going to involve really understanding and, and being grateful to learn how I've been wrong. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, well, we've done enough. You're going to have to go pick up your kid. I am. So, um, thank you all for listening and we, um, will, We'll talk next week, but if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian Church, you can go to the website, which is deridachurch.com. You can join them for worship at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings, and you can find um, past messages by Reverend Yolando Hinton at the Derida Church podcast and on their YouTube um, channel. You should look for, it's D-E-R-I-T-A. You should look for the um, logo, which is one of their really beautiful stained glass windows of a dove flying down. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, uh, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You could worship with us at 10 a.m. on Sundays, and you can check out um, messages and sermons from The Grove on our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast. Um, you can look for the tree. It's got little headphones on. Super cute. iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can go to our YouTube channel, um, which I think is The Grove Charlotte or The Grove Church. Sorry, there's a lot of groves out there. So just look for the tree, the green tree with roots in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Bye.